This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 9, 1-7. It's found on page 573 in the Bibles in your rows and is also printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along as I read. Isaiah 9, 1-7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Heather. Well, I have the uh, opportunity to uh, introduce our, our speaker this morning. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the service, uh, Ray Kanata is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New Orleans, and um, Ray's a, a longtime friend. Um, he went to, uh, was educated at Wake Forest um, University, went on to seminary at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey as a uh, doctor of ministry uh, from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia as well. Uh, but Ray was my pastor when I uh, went to graduate school in New Jersey, and uh, I met him uh, way back in the fall of 2001. And uh, I had, first time I had visited his church, uh, I was there on a Sunday that he was not there, but I had signed in or something like that. And Ray, uh, the you know Monday after I had visited, I, I got a you know a, a, an email and, and response introducing himself, and then I was slow to respond to that. So Tuesday I think I got a text, and then Wednesday I got a phone call, and then Thursday he came and had lunch with me, and um, that was really indicative. It was a little overkill, I will say, but uh, it was uh, indicative, I think, of uh, the way that he has um, pursued me uh, in uh, our life uh, as friends since then, on more than 20 years now. Uh, he's been a great friend. He's been a pastor and a shepherd to me. Uh, he has uh, been a great uh, model of ministry. In fact, one of the things I was saying to some of our staff was that um, the thing about Ray that stands out perhaps most to me is his sincerity. Of all the people that I've known in ministry, he's the most consistent practitioner of what it is that he says he believes. Uh, the things that he teaches, the things that he says that he believes, he works out in really dil diligent and thoughtful ways. 
And I'll just give you two very quick examples of that. Number one was uh, I had gotten a call in August of uh, 2005. Is that when Katrina, 2005? Uh, August in 2005, maybe a week or two before Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. Ray was still the pastor in New Jersey, but he was interviewing for a job with a small church plant in New Orleans. And uh, Ray had... I'd heard him a million times preach about moving toward the pain, moving toward difficulty, not shying away from hard callings in life. Uh, they, he, I was, he was listed me as a reference, and so the, the person who was doing the hiring for that job had called me. And then a week later, of course, I saw on the news that Hurricane Katrina devastated the city of New Orleans, devastated the neighborhood, uh, even that he was going to be ministering in. And I just thought to myself, well, I guess that that's not going to happen. You know, that job's not going to happen. But then Sure enough, right, he calls me a few weeks after that, and he says, I'm moving my family. We're moving to New Orleans. This church that was already a small little church had been reduced to about 17 people. Uh, most of the church had not moved back or wasn't moving back after uh, Katrina had destroyed uh, homes and businesses and livelihoods and almost everything, and he uprooted his family and moved to, uh, to New Orleans. Again, uh, an application of the things that I'd heard him teach a million times about God's call to move toward pain move toward difficulty, move toward the brokenhearted and the hurting, and he was living it out. And his work in New Orleans has been uh, a really wonderful thing, not only building a church, not only uh, being a, a chaplain to his neighborhood, sharing his faith regularly, but also their re- rebuilding work uh, in New Orleans has been uh, a wonderful thing to see and, and to know. I should also mention he's the co-author of a wonderful book called Rooted, uh, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, nobody knows who the other author is of that book, but he 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 uh, did a great job with that. Uh, but then the last thing I'll say is, you know, we gave him uh, the option of preaching on any of the fruit of the Spirit, and I just assumed he would pick the one uh, that he felt like he had, you know, taught on the best at some other time. And instead, his his and this is, goes to his sincerity again. Instead, his uh, rubric for deciding was, uh, you know, which fruit of the Spirit do I want to spend the time? Do I need to spend the time meditating on and reflecting on? Uh, not just to get ready to speak to us, uh, but just to grow in, in his own life. And that's why we, we're uh, doing things a little out of order this morning, as he's going to come and teach us about peace. So uh, let's give Ray a round of applause. Come and open God's word for us. Thank you, Josh. Um, Gosh, you know, I, uh, I told the group uh, this week we were on retreat together, and I, and I said, uh, I told the story last week, uh, I had a friend come to town, and he announced to me, he's an artist, he announced me he's uh, doing his next book on pilgrimages, and I love, I love the topic, and he asked me, well, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Have you had any sort of meaningful pilgrimages? Not, not in a superstitious way, but, you know, in a way where you go back to somewhere where, the, where God's done something special in your life, and you've... Uh, you've been moved by. And I, and I talked about Rome and, and uh, having a very meaningful spiritual experience there, going to the Vatican, and more so even in Israel. But I said to him, honestly, I said, I said, I think my favorite pilgrimage place, the most meaningful one, is Cincinnati. <laughs> you know, I don't know how many people come to Cincinnati for spiritual pilgrimages, but if I think about <laughs> all, the, uh, all the ways that I've been touched by grace by y'all, just, I, don't, I can't remember, it's like my eighth or ninth visit or something. I lived here for a month with the Rotanos during my sabbatical a few years ago, very, very meaningful. And um, this place just keeps blessing and blessing. I, I love your city so much. Uh, I won't tell you about all the great meals I've had here already because I don't want to make you jealous, uh, resentful or anything. So uh, I love this city so much. You know, another place that I, I, I kind of like, too, is my own city in New Orleans. I, uh, maybe an understatement. I, I mean, I just love it more than anywhere else in the world. 
and uh, it's been my home now for 17 and a half years. But you know what the thing is? It's, uh, it's a difficult kind of love, right? Some loves in our lives are a difficult kind of love. Doesn't mean it's less, it just means it's difficult, right? And uh, I love my city in the way that I love my Aunt Peggy Ann as a kid. Um, she was single, and she was a New York City cop, and she was just totally unhinged, just bizarre, you know? <laughs> Zero of her amazing stories actually happened, I think. All of them fictional. Uh, she was fully capable of kidnapping me, I'm not kidding you, for a day or two when I was a kid without telling my parents. Uh, it was okay, I didn't get hurt, nothing bad, nothing traumatic, well, maybe mildly traumatic, but uh, she took me to Baseball Hall of Fame in upstate New York on a whim. Uh, she would take me for like bagels in Brooklyn in an all Hasidic neighborhood where I was the only one not wearing a hat with curls, you know. Um, uh, she'd take me to her precinct office to show me a holding cell. I mean, I, I, listen, I just, I, I totally get why my parents were terrified and infuriated with her and pretty much the whole family. But, you know, I loved her and she loved me back. And, uh, you know, she was the most insanely fun of anybody in my family I knew, but she was also the most disappointing, right? And that's the way I love New Orleans, right? New Orleans to me is like the, 17 years in, I'm still trying to figure it out, but I feel like it's the, the crazy Aunt Piggy Ann of cities, right? Um, so for example, just in a uh, recent two-week period, right, that just went by, I saw our church's Grammy-winning uh, saxophone player perform in three different amazing music clubs uh, in a two-week period, I, but also, uh, in my news feed was uh, a, a report that came out listing the 10 most dangerous cities in the world, and New Orleans was kindly ranked number seven, the only American city on the list. Uh, you know, number six next year, I don't know, right? Um, I got to ride and dance in a Easter parade again in my favorite gold lame suit, I have several, uh, through the French Quarter. Uh, and I ate at least five pounds of crawfish with Brussels sprouts and corn on the cob and onions and garlic at our church's boil in the neighborhood park. But also, uh, a sinkhole opened up on the side of the road two doors down from my house. It may not be there anymore. I haven't talked to my wife this morning, my house. Uh, but uh, I'm not talking about a pothole, right? We have the, if you've been to New Orleans, we have those like every block, giant potholes historic potholes, but this thing's not a pothole. It, you know, it started out as a hole in the road uh, about two weeks ago that's about the size of a pizza, maybe, you know? And, but the thing was, you look down into it, and I can't see the end of it, right? Like, in every direction. It's a, it's a cavern. It's a vast recess, right, under this hole. The only thing keeping it from being a sinkhole yet is just, like, two inches of very, very old asphalt. So I think it's like, it's like the upside down, right? And like Stranger Things, I'm just waiting for like Vecna to rise out of it with his minions. I think that'll happen before the city will ever repair it. Um, so there's that. But then I also randomly happened the last two weeks upon a couple of small parades in my neighborhood. No idea why, just joined in. Had at least a half dozen life-changing meals. Uh, but I also wandered into a store five minutes after it had a car crash into it to uh, rob its ATM. Uh, they, they, weren't, they weren't in business when I walked in. Uh, I ran into an endless line of little kids in uniform during these two weeks, being escorted back to school from a park outing, holding hands two by two, so cute, uh, skipping and dancing and singing a song entirely in French. Uh, I also dodged potholes that would have swallowed up my motorcycle, including one helpfully decorated seasonally. 
Uh, it was a Christmas tree a few months ago. Right now, it currently has a giant Easter bunny in the, in the pothole and eggs. Uh, another one next block over from me, uh, middle of the road, a neighbor has planted things. Uh, also, she switches out seasonally. She has platunias in there right now, very lovely, and, uh, and a uh, azalea, I think, in the middle of it. So anyway, what I'm getting at is my city is just gallons of sweet and gallons of bitter, right? All just so relentless and routine. And you try to hide in this crazy parade of freakish delights and dangers will find you. Uh, but one thing that both sides have in common, the sweet and the bitter, both will suck all the peace out of the room, right? Near zero peace. Uh, but we're, here's my settled belief. While my city's lack of peace is more obvious, it's more in your face, it's more dramatic and silly and scary, I really believe in different ways every American place, including the great city of Cincinnati too, is no more peaceful really. Fundamentally not more peaceful. Peace is in retreat everywhere. And all with all this, you know, just trauma and drama, right? Uh, Jonathan Bates recently wrote an article that touched on this. I, I always, as a pastor, I always look up the biography of the people, but this guy has like a common name. I couldn't figure it out. So I have no idea. So don't get mad at Josh if this guy's like a Satanist or a shaman or a, a felon or like a horrible Presbyterian or, you know, something equally disgraceful. Um, for all I know, he might be wonderful too. I have no idea, but he wrote a great article. And he wrote about this gripping, uh, you know, he wrote a gripping article about this. And to paraphrase, I'm just going to paraphrase what he said, but he describes how modern life can be profoundly interesting and exciting, but this comes at a terrible cost. And the cost, he says, is a lack of peace. That's what got my interest. For the average person, he talks about how, you know, a, daily, a day basically consists of battling in a car through a world of massive billboards and leaf blowers. That's my personal, uh, you know, that's my pet peeve. Uh, police sirens, construction noises, car horns, and then just past hundreds of people, disinterested people, uh, you know, smartphone gazing, right? The average person commutes hours to and from a job they dislike, returning to the end of a grinding day just spent. Spent, right? Evenings mostly involve connecting to people through a screen, you know, binge-watching the latest viral Netflix series or scrolling through the bottomless dystopic you know, carnage-filled hellscape that is social media, right? Uh, on the screen, we're all bombarded by news. And, you know, red or blue, it matters not. Uh, all the news specifically designed to short-circuit our better judgment. Uh, news almost entirely toxic, have you noticed? Uh, unfortunately, to maximize traffic, news sources have learned that it's best to be polarizing and controversial and sensational. Clickbait titles that distort the truth are used to trigger our limbic system, right? Uh, <laughs> our primary anger and the primal anger and, and fear responses, uh, causing us to frantically click, read anxiously, and then get sucked into the warring um, you know, comment strings. And then most of us hold back. We can't even vent on the comment strings because we're afraid to step in the oatmeal, right? Like it's, you know? So look, I, I know anxiety is definitely not new. It's not new, it's not unique to us, but in our culture, the mood's been shading black for some time. Just such a queasy sense of crisis, right? I mean, let's be honest. And then as we process all this, to make it worse, it's in a world that's been disenchanted, right? Disenchanted. We've disconnected from the magic, the, the comfort and the joys of the spiritual dimension of the human experience. Modern secular scientific orthodoxy just relentlessly presses this view that all of this happened in the cosmos 
is, is it's just a cold, mostly dead and unthinking machine born of random accidents. And this unproven hypothesis, right, that's forced on us is further contributes to this is widespread of anxiety uh, and, and agitation and alienation. Okay, I, I didn't come here to depress you, right? But, you know, we know, we know, we know, right? But th there's, there's a lot of blood under the bridge, right? And the wounds seem to be hemorrhaging worse every day. So now if you reflect on what this diminishing piece all does to you, and you kind of think about your responses to it, I think you're going to agree that most of us swing between two kinds of responses, right? Sort of our knee-jerk one that we learn from the culture and we fall back into is at times we fall into distress, and then other times we grab for distractions, right? Distress, then distractions. Distress, then distractions. Sort of a cycle. And we panic at the dangers until we temporarily escape into intoxicating pleasures. So to fuel all the distractions, the world's become, it's really developed into a sophisticated machine. It's become this never-ending series of supernormally addictive temptations, Right? Porn and video games and fast food and social media and online gambling, Amazon and the ubiquitous screens, right? Then there's Hulu and Disney Plus and Amazon and, Pro and Amazon Prime and uh, Apple TV and Netflix and Sling, Peacock, <laughs> Fubo TV, right? In America alone, uh, a whopping, do you know this? 599 original scripted English language alone series were produced just in the last year. Almost tripled the number 13 years ago. And so many of those are really good, you know? But it's hard to overstate how weird and dangerous all this is. But it's, it's all our culture offers to cope with our lack of peace in our lives. Right? Distress or distraction. Cycles of distress and distraction. But we know, as we know, we just we have it in our bones. We know life, the life abundant, of course, can't really be built on any of those things. Our Isaiah 9 passage tells us that Jesus' invasion into our lives clears a third way. A third way beyond those two. A way that engages pain and pleasures, but can redeem everything. Thomas Howard writes of Jesus coming into the world that was foretold in Isaiah 9. He writes, The incarnation took all that properly belongs to our humanity and delivered it back to us, redeemed. All of our inclinations and appetites and capacities and yearnings are purified and gathered up and glorified by Christ. He did not come to thin out human life. He came to set it free. All the dancing and feasting and processing and singing and building and sculpting and baking and merrymaking that belongs to us and that was stolen away into the service of false gods are returned to us in the gospel, he says. Jesus' invasion into our lives clears a path to a third way, a way that redeems everything and delivers it back to us. A way that can take both the distressing and the distracting and infuse them with fresh hope and new meaning and the deep joy that our Isaiah 9 text celebrates. When we actually encounter the God who came near to us, it should bring neither distress nor distraction. Embraced, it ushers peace, real peace, a peace that gets into our bones and spills out as a fruit of the Spirit. What used to distress you will begin to feel like an opportunity 
to redeem. And things that used to escape, used as escapes to just distract you, will begin to usher in deeper joys as that peace grows. But how can that happen, right? The background of the text, Israel was like DEFCON 5, right? There's this monster, uh, infamously, you know, infamously cruel pagan army that was approaching, right? Picture, you know, you're, you're, you're this little town in Ukraine and Putin's army is, is coming at the gates, right? The orcs of Middle Earth, whatever you want to think of, right? The knee-jerk sort of trigger is distress, right? Of course it would be distress. But Isaiah says, take hope. Inner peace, not in your defenses, not in your diplomacy, not in the new Netflix series that just dropped, not in your political party winning the next election. These are mere distractions. Lasting hope is in God alone, he says. Yes, the Assyrians are coming. Yes, your job is in jeopardy. Yes, crime is spiking in your city. Yes, the culture mocks your faith and biblical lifestyles. But the Prince of Peace is coming. He's really coming. All that was said 700 years before he came, and he did come. But then we ask, you know, if Jesus came to usher peace, it's been 2,000 years, and peace seems more elusive than ever sometimes. Where is this peace? And that's the first thing I want to talk about, where is peace? Blaise Pascal lived in the 17th century. You've heard of him, I think, right? He was this absurdly brilliant, like, prodigy, mathematician, and philosopher, and, you know, Pascal is the kind of genius who masters the Pythagorean theorem when he's five years old, right? He was also a profoundly committed Christian. And when he died in his 30s, he left behind an unorganized, unpublished set of short writings on faith that were later collected and published as the Pensee, right? And listen carefully to thought number 407 of the Pensee. He writes, The Stoic says, Withdraw into yourself. And that is where you'll find peace. And that is not true. Others say, go outside, look for peace in some diversion. And that is not true. We may fall sick. I like how he makes that little aside. We may fall sick. You know, it's like too much pork belly, you know, too much, too many cocktails, you get sick. Okay, Pascal continues, peace is found neither outside nor inside us. It is found in God, who is both outside and inside us. Again, let me read that again. Stoic says, withdraw into yourself, and that is where you will find peace. And that is not true. Others say, go outside yourself, look for peace in some diversion. And that is not true. We may fall sick. Peace is found neither outside nor inside us. It is found in God, who is both outside and inside us. Okay, so the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, an angel appears and announces the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. Classic Christmas text, right? Heard it a million times. Remember how it goes? He does not proclaim, I will bring you good news of great joy for if you search your inner self, there you're going to discover peace, right? No, the angel says, you will find, here's peace. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Peace on earth. This God-man has now punched a hole in the sky and invaded our planet. Come near to bring peace. The answer to our longing, to our craving for peace, is not inside ourselves, right? You know, just take an honest look under the hood, right? Look inside yourself, get in touch with your inner self, and you're you're not going to find enduring peace there, right? We're listening to Rolling Stones on the way uh, back uh, from the thing, you know, from the uh, retreat. 
And, uh, you know, that line, I look inside myself and I see my heart is black, right? Pascal and Isaiah and the angels are correct. Peace, lasting peace is not to be found inside of ourselves. But what about peace outside ourselves? How about distracting ourselves? You know, I live in the national headquarters, international headquarters maybe, of distractions, right? Unmatched pleasures. There is no end to just, not just live music, but like transformative live music everywhere. Not just endless eateries, like life-changing ones, right? Where you least expect them. You, you can distract yourself every waking minute in this, in this town, and I know, in my town, and I know people that try. But will that bring peace? You know what it brings? It brings unemployment. <laughs> it brings rehab eventually, probably. Pascal says it'll make you sick eventually, and he's right. And even short term, I mean, think about it. In all, in all the ways that we distract ourselves, as soon as you return to work from that amazing vacation that you dreamed of, as soon as the parade ends, as soon as the check arrives, as soon as the game ends, the fantasy's over and you're back in it. Right? That little red circle with a number pops up over your email icon on your phone and the lump of your throat returns immediately, right? Pleasure, distractions are awesome, but they're never permanent. Lasting peace can't be found outside ourselves any more than it can be find in, found inside ourselves. Real peace only comes from God, the one true personal God who is both outside and inside of us, Pascal said. What does he mean by that? Well, if, if Christ is the Prince of Peace, then, ask, then to ask where is peace is to also ask who is peace. That's the second thing I want to talk about, the who is peace. First of all, Isaiah 9's Prince of Peace is outside of us. Jesus is not invented by us like Wonder Woman or Yoda, right? He's not a projection of our best hopes or imagination. He doesn't belong to us. We belong to him. We can't summon him. He exists separately from us, and he comes to us. When Isaiah 9 was fulfilled in Luke 2, the shepherds didn't summon the baby Jesus. Right? The angels came to the shepherds suddenly and unexpectedly and announced that God had already come. Jesus is transcendent. He doesn't spring from us. He, he's not the best part of us. He's a real person outside of us. As theologian Karl Barth termed him, holy other. But the Jesus who comes from outside us also comes inside us. That amazing phrase of Paul in Colossians, right? Christ in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. When we've trusted in his atoning work, the eternal God, Lord, comes to dwell in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. He gets in your blood. Right, and that is peace, real peace. You know, at my church, we have, you know, like, like you all, with the passing of the peace, in our worship, I say every, almost every Sunday when we introduce the passing of peace, I say, you know, all in Christ already have peace, an unshakable peace, a lasting peace, an unbreakable peace from our Creator, and therefore, we can start to enjoy peace with one another. So the passing of the peace isn't a handshake and a seventh-inning stretch, Right? It's a, it's, a, it's a visible, tangible reminder, an important reenactment of something at the heart of the gospel. It's about peace. So let's move from the where of peace and the who to peace to the how of peace. I mean, that's really what we want to do, right? We want to say, how do we get this peace? The Bible teaches that we were born at war with God. Our old self wants independence, and the Lord is a threat to that. But God chose to come among us to make peace between himself and his people. Paul says in Romans 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of demanding justice for our rebellion, a price that we could never pay, God paid it himself. Only religion in history that ever has claimed this. God paid it himself to settle the debt. On the cross, he took hell upon himself so that he could be at peace with him, reconciled with him. He did it all for us. When we, had, we, when, when we have come to embrace him, he looks upon us as if we'd never made any mistakes, as if we were perfect. God is at perfect peace with us. I mean, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? That God is at peace with you? Even as Christians, we revert to old self-thinking that lasting peace is something that we have to win and that we have to hold on to for ourselves. So in desperation, we have unwinnable, white-knuckle struggles to control our circumstances and to limit our pain. But the irony is that this kills any chance for full, lasting peace, right? Because even when we succeed to dominate for a while, we live in constant fear of losing our grip. There's no peace at the top, right? Luke 19 says, Jesus grieved over the people because they did not, quote, know things that make for peace. The things that make for peace. We look for peace in all the wrong places. Isaiah wants us to know in this fallen world, peace is not a lack of conflict. However big your retirement account, however many security cameras you install around your house, however the Ukraine war ends, however much you work out, eventually the Assyrians will come. Right? The Assyrians are coming. Conflict is inevitable. But peace isn't found in a lack of conflict. Peace is in the presence of God amidst that conflict. In Isaiah 8, the chapter right before our text, he's called a name that's repeated 700 years later in Matthew's gospel. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, who is greater than any conflict. Emmanuel, God with you, right? God with Josh Rotano. Emmanuel, God with with, uh, Audrey. God with Jake. God with us. God with you and me. Amen? If you believe it, you can say it. Amen? Yeah, all right. All right, that doesn't make you Pentecostal. I told the guy, I revealed that to the guys in the retreat. It was a big surprise. Um, I mean, believe that, right? And we can let go of this constant losing battle to control our lives. We let go and cling instead to Christ, trust Christ, listen to his word amid the static of war. God offers a different kind of peace, a peace that you were built for. You were built for this. In that second chapter of Luke's gospel, the one that explicitly referenced fulfillment of Isaiah 9, right after the angels and the shepherds, we learn of an event that occurred eight days after Jesus was born. An old man named Simeon takes the baby Jesus into his arms, and he gushes. He says, Lord, now you're letting me depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. so beautiful. But then Simeon said something utterly critical. Something to Jesus' mother Mary that seems directly opposite of what he just said of peace. The next thing he says is he says, this child is destined to cause the fall and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul also, he says. The way to peace, real peace, is by the coming of this king but it involves his sword piercing our souls, right? It stings. It's like an antiseptic on a wound. It heals diseased hearts, but that can't happen without pain. In a fallen world, there can be no peace without the king of kings waging all-out war on injustice. And that hurts. 
So we face, these, we face these forks in the road, right? This way or that way. One way promising comfort and the other one a sword. Right? The road of trust of our Isaiah 9 king hurts. It often brings conflict, more conflict with our career path or popularity or safety sometimes. It looks like a road across broken glass, but the other road, the road of distraction from God's word, looks like a plush easy chair, a cool margarita, lots of tiny hearts on your social media post, right? But God's word says, listen, because this is a broken world, in the short run, the road of faith feels at first like a sword to your heart. But trusting God's goodness and greatness, the road of faith will eventually re- lead to real peace. Simeon soared through the heart. I think of one of my best friends ever. His name's Jeff. One of my favorite people to ever walk the earth. He dropped out of school early to chase adventures, uh, but he had a PhD in being awesome. <laughs> Became a revered chef in sophisticated, world-class New Orleans restaurants. Yes, a total mess, but so much fun. You know, I, I said one time to somebody, if, last, if, laster, if laughter is the best medicine, right, everybody around him suffered from being over-medicated. So it shouldn't have surprised me that I got the call in the middle of the night about Jeff's horrendous drunk, drunken late-night car wreck permanently paralyzed from the neck down. He he has spent his life running hard from God, driving into endless distractions, and he never knew peace. But it was this sword, this sword through his heart that finally brought him the peace that he longed for. Because when he came out of his coma, paralyzed from the chin down, my formerly atheist friend, all he wanted to do the last few days of his life was pray Praise Jesus. Celebrate a peace that passes all understanding. It was awkward and uncomfortable, and I tried to change the subject, and he'd get mad at me and bring it back to Christ. He was on his journey back home to the Prince of Peace, and he didn't want to waste a minute. The Prince of Peace, who had loved and pursued him his whole life. I got another call at 2 a.m. a few days later and met his parents in the hospital room. We were there together with him when he, when he was promoted to glory. My point is, the same sword that cut him was the sword that healed him, right? Now really hear this. Jesus brought us peace by going to a cross, right? Jesus brought peace by submitting to the empire's most violent, painful mode of death. The path to our peace can only come by his own pain. Jesus knew the sword he suffered was to win peace with you, peace. Jesus is the Lord who chose a stable, not a palace, who rode in on a donkey, not a stallion, who came as a peasant, not a king, and he chose to be stabbed through the heart to win your peace. That's the Jesus who rose, who really rose, who bodily rose, and who sits right now on the throne of creation, right now. Listen, friends, that... That's a firm foundation. That's a worthy vision. That's a platform for peace. When we're remembering this, we can face anything. When we're remembering this, it assures us out of our fears. 
When we're remembering this, we, don't, we, we can have true peace, real peace, here and now, even while staring down life's swords. This will fuse joy and gratitude to all the work and play that we do. Hey, I, know this, I, I don't know all of you. I know a bunch of you. I, uh, I'm sure there's a wide range of people here. There's people here who are skeptics. Some of you are skeptics. Some of you who sort of maybe drifting back into church and you're dipping your toe in the water. Some of you have been Christians all your life and you haven't missed a Sunday yet. Well, listen, this, here and now, can be a really important moment for you, all of you. The most relevant question you can ever ask yourself Where are you searching for your peace? Are you desperately looking for it inside of yourself? Or are you looking for it outside of yourself and and hopeless diversions? Or are you looking to Christ for peace? The one who's outside yourself but comes inside you. His path will get you near the business end of more swords. Right? But they, they can't slay you because your core now, your core is now at eternal peace. An armored peace that no sword can touch. A peace as solid as God himself. Jesus' empty tomb, occupied throne, and sure return will generate within you that deep peace amid sword fights. A bold love, a palpable hope, and a gospel-saturated lifestyle that can carry you all the way home. And our Prince of Peace also gives us his body, right? A family. Look around you, a forever family. Bigger than this even. Stretches across the globe and back through history. Burdens get light when you let your sisters and brothers in Christ get close to you. So as we all come to the table in just a minute, together, my hope for us is that we lay aside all our fruitless striving for a safety that's all about fear. And embrace a complete peace that's all about God's love. Not inside us, not outside of us, but in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, as he comes from outside us and enters into us. Just as his bread and wine will do in a moment. Amen? Amen. Amen. May I pray for us? Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son that in Christ you came to... To, uh, to die for us, rise for us, reign for us, that we can know, we can know surely that uh, we don't know what swords will, will, will confront us, we don't know how we'll be pierced, but we know that in all that and much more, in the joys and in the sufferings, in the, in the pleasures and the pains, that you are with us, you are really with us, you've given it all for us, and that we can, we can, we can, we can latch on to that and find a bold love, a palpable hope, and a gospel-saturated lifestyle. Lord, what we're asking for is the fruit of, of, of peace that comes in our lives, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.